I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Happy Saturday. In our recent episode on the balloons of World War II, we talked about how Japan's development of balloon bombs was spurred on by wanting a way to strike back at the United States after the Doolittle Raid. Our episode on Jimmy Doolittle and the Doolittle Raid came out on February 10th, 2016, and it is today's Saturday Classic. In this episode, I speculated on whether Jimmy Doolittle had ever met another figure from a long-ago podcast episode, which was physicist Luis Alvarez. It seemed like they would have gotten along to me. It turns out, yes, they did. Uh, In Alvarez's memoir, he described Jimmy Doolittle as one of his two principal heroes of aviation, the other one being Chuck Yeager. And he said that those two men were the only two people he ever asked for an autograph in his adult life. Enjoy! Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today's episode is a request from listener Laura and her son. And I don't think she put her son's name in the email. But in truth, it's only sort of a request from them. Uh, Her son asked for the Doolittle Raid, which I was game to cover. But really what ended up happening was that as I was researching, I got really excited about Jimmy Doolittle himself uh, because he was pretty amazing. And I certainly had no idea how much he contributed to the field of aviation. So I got really engulfed in that and really, really enjoyed it. Uh, So we are going to talk about the Doolittle Raid, but it will definitely be like an abridged version. We're not going to go into all of the many details. There have been plenty of books written about it. Uh, So don't worry, because if you really want to dig deeper, there is a lot of good stuff out there, including uh, James Doolittle's autobiography, which I really enjoyed and highly recommend. But first, we have to do a little bit of historical housekeeping for context. So that historical housekeeping is the attack on Pearl Harbor. On December 7th, 1941, there was a two-hour surprise attack on an American naval base near Honolulu, Hawaii. 
Japanese fighter pilots just wrought incredible damage on Pearl Harbor, both in terms of human life and lost military assets. By the time this short but extremely brutal attack had ended, more than 2,000 American troops were dead and 1,000 were wounded, and the Japanese pilots had taken out eight battleships, almost a dozen other naval watercraft, and more than 300 airplanes. This is the action that led the United States to enter World War II, which had already been going on for two years. Uh, And at that point, the United States formally declared war on Japan. So keep that in mind. Uh, And now we're going to talk for a little bit about James Doolittle. So he was really the key figure in the Doolittle Raid uh, and the man it was eventually named after, Jimmy Doolittle. It was also called the Tokyo Raid before it kind of took on the nickname of the Doolittle Raid. Jimmy was born James Harold Doolittle on December 14th of 1896 in California, and his parents were Rose Shepard Doolittle and Frank H. Doolittle. Frank chased gold. It's how he and Rose ended up in California, having moved there from New England in search of wealth. And when Jimmy was four, Frank once again moved the family in search of gold, but this time to Nome, Alaska. After seven years in Alaska, where he got into plenty of scraps with the other local kids, Jimmy was sent back to California by his parents so that he could go to school there. As he moved into his teenage years, he showed some talent in boxing, and he won a state boxing championship while he was in high school. While he considered going pro in the boxing ring, he enrolled at UCLA instead. And Doolittle was a junior in college when the U.S. entered World War I, and he immediately enlisted as an Army Signal Corps flying cadet. He worked as a flying instructor, and he was never shipped overseas. And once the war was over, he went back and finished his undergraduate degree at University of California, Los Angeles. And then he went on to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology as part of a select military group of enrollees to earn his master's degree and his Ph.D. in aeronautical engineering. Jimmy Doolittle was a legend before the raid because his life was one of those that was really just filled with bravado and extraordinary feats. He worked as a stunt pilot and as a wing walker in the 1920s and 30s, and he went on to work as a test pilot and an aviation engineer. Throughout, he was still part of the United States military. He won the Distinguished Flying Cross in 1922 for flying cross-country with just one stop from Pablo Beach, Florida to Rockwell, California over the course of 22 and a half hours in a de Havilland aircraft. It was a flight that had been aborted on his first attempt because as he was taking off, the left wheel of his plane hit a soft sand patch and the plane went off course and actually ended up flipped upside down in the water. And Doolittle was mortally embarrassed by this much publicized flop uh, because there had been a lot of people on hand to witness this takeoff. But he did try again later, and this time he did it with no fanfare or press on hand. His second attempt was rough because a storm came up just as he took flight, but he powered through it. He struggled with sleepiness because after the thunderstorm, things were so placid that he started to get sleepy. But the rain itself was what actually saved him. These raindrops that were hitting his propeller were being whipped back at him and ended up running down his back. The cold trickles of all this water were really annoying, but they also kept him from dozing off. And his award came because with this flight, he had basically proven that it was possible to move an Army Air Corps unit anywhere within the U.S. in less than 24 hours. And this was just one of many awards that he would earn throughout his career in flight. In early 1925, which was the same year that he earned his doctorate, he set a world record for a seaplane of 232 miles an hour in the Schneider Seaplane Race in Baltimore, Maryland. 
He had fitted an existing racing plane that had been developed cooperatively with the Army and the Navy with pontoons to enter the seaplane race. The day after the race, he took the craft out again and beat his own world record that he had just set, putting it, pushing it up to 245 miles an hour. This turned out to cause some sour grapes. That race had historically been dominated by Navy pilots, so they weren't really thrilled to lose the title to an Army guy who had just decided on a whim that he wanted to fly seaplanes. <laughs> Yeah, he was, you know, kind of one of those people that was extraordinary and that when he set his mind to do something, he was usually shockingly good at it. Uh, later in 1925, he got permission for a six-month-long leave from his military career, and this was to work as an aircraft demonstrator in South America, showing off the quality and maneuverability of Curtis P-1 Hawk fighters. He headed first to Santiago, Chile in 1926. So he'd gotten the permission in 25, but he actually left in 26. Uh, And there he got in a dogfight competition, like a competition flight, not an actual dogfight, against German ace Ernst von Schoenbeck of the Richthofen Flying Circus. That name rings a bell. It was not actually a circus. It was a World War I German fighter unit, nicknamed for using very colorful airplanes. So Doolittle was going up against really stiff competition, and he managed to win, which might be impressive enough on its own, but there's actually more to the story. Yeah, at the time of this competition, Doolittle was flying with two broken ankles. Uh, He had fallen from a window during a party, attempting to show off that he could do similar swashbuckling stunts to those of screen star Douglas Fairbanks. And if you're wondering, yes, alcohol was involved in this poor decision-making. After the fall, Doolittle had attached his boots to the rudders of his plane so that he could continue to fly and do the job that he had traveled to South America for. And that was the state he was in when he was challenged by this German pilot. I kind of want to look into whether he and Luis Alvarez knew each other. (laughs) Because it seems like from our episode on him, which is long ago in the archive at this point, uh, they probably would have gotten along. I would think so, yes. It sounds like lots of people got along with Jimmy Doolittle. He sounds like a fabulous and fascinating gent to know. So uh, after he went back to the United States, the doctors at Walter Reed grounded him. And really, really grounded him. He wasn't allowed to do much of anything for six months because flying in casts using the workaround setup that he had figured out had really done serious damage to his legs. But being the man that he was, he did not just sit around doing nothing during that time. And we're going to talk about what he worked on while he was recuperating. But first, let's pause and take a quick break to talk about one of our much-loved sponsors. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary Evolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. So instead of sitting idle while on forced rest, Doolittle used his convalescence to return to the subject uh, that he had written his dissertation on, which was pilots blacking out during extreme maneuvers. And he started to think specifically about stunt flying and blackouts. So prior to this time, and I really feel compelled to mention that at this point, flying planes had only been happening for a little more than two decades. Uh, This was the mid-20s, and the Wright brothers and their Kill Devil Hills adventures were in the early 1900s. So it's a really tight time frame. So he was thinking about stunt flying and the fact that only inside loops had been performed in flight up to this point, and an outside loop was considered too dangerous. So if you don't know what those are, An inside loop, if you were to draw a picture on a piece of paper of a plane doing a loop, like a loop-de-loop, an inside loop, the pilot would always be inside the circle. Like that's where the cockpit is always facing up into the circle. Whereas an outside loop, the pilot would be on the outside of the plane or on the outside of the circle facing outward. He was really fascinated by the idea of an outside loop, and he took advantage of this forced downtime at Walter Reed to speak with other pilots who were being treated there and get their thoughts on outside loops. He pondered the idea from an engineering standpoint, trying to figure out just what might happen to the human body during that kind of a stunt. So, of course, the minute he was cleared to fly again, he started testing out his ideas. He ran various partial loop tests before becoming the first known pilot to successfully complete an outside loop in 1927. Never one to rest on his laurels, clearly. He continued to do some innovative and adventurous things. And two years later, on September 29th of 1929, Jimmy Doolittle made the first blind flight using instruments only in Nassau County in New York. Prior to that, pilots were depending on visuals a great deal on what they could actually see out the cockpit window. But he had developed a beacon system to give pilots a sense of location when no visuals were possible. And with that, he basically kicked off the development of the modern cockpit. He also received the Daniel Guggenheim Medal for Advancing Aeronautics and the Harmon Trophy for Outstanding Aviation as well for having done this amazing thing. 
The following year, which was 1930, Jimmy Doolittle retired from active duty with the Army Air Corps. He spent the next decade taking home trophies for winning speed races and working at Shell Oil while the company developed high-octane fuel that would eventually become the standard for military aircraft. After 10 years away from the military, James Doolittle was recalled for active duty in 1940 after Hitler invaded Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Poland, Belgium, and France. He was 43 at the time, and he was tasked with fulfilling the Army Air Corps' need to produce 50,000 planes each year rather than the 2,000 that they had been producing. Because even though the U.S. at this point had not joined the war, they wanted to be ready. Working with Detroit car manufacturers, despite neither the auto industry nor the Army being particularly keen on that kind of partnership, Doolittle was able to succeed in this mandate. By the end of 1941, Ford was producing the consolidated B-24 bomber. But even though this was really a huge feather in his cap and he had performed above and beyond what had been expected or hoped for, Doolittle was pretty miserable. <laughs> he just didn't like this. He didn't like a desk job and he wanted to return to really active duty. And he made requests for a transfer to go to a combat unit through all of the appropriate channels, but he basically got turned down every time and got constant resistance. But then, finally, in January of 1942, He received a call and was tasked with a secret mission. And his job was to plan and execute an air raid against Japan. The attack on Pearl Harbor that we talked about at the top of the show and the events that came after it set the United States on edge. In the Pacific, U.S. troops did not fare well against the Japanese, and things weren't really going well in Europe either. Something had to be done to neutralize Japan's forces if the United States was going to make any headway in the Pacific. After several months of planning, Doolittle and his men were ready. On April 18th of 1942, 16 B-25 Mitchell bombers with a total of 80 volunteer crewmen launched from the aircraft carrier Hornet. Their flight began 620 miles away from Japan, and the original plan had called for a takeoff from the Hornet at approximately 400 miles from Japan's coast. But because a fishing boat spotted the carrier, things had to be revised at the last minute because their uh, position had been called in. The B-25s had been fitted with extra fuel tanks, which meant that they lost armament in the process. Because the airplanes weren't originally intended to take off from an aircraft carrier, there also had to be really significant changes in the takeoff procedure. Pilots were trained to take off not at the usual 90 miles an hour, but at 60 miles per hour. You know a lot about how planes take off. Speed is essential. This is tricky. They also had a lot less runway than would normally be available. Aboard each B-25 were five men. The pilot, the co-pilot, a bombardier, a navigator, and a gunner. And as a personal side note, uh, the practice runs for these takeoffs were performed at an auxiliary field to Eglin Field in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, which is where my dad was stationed for a really long time. Uh, So I know that area well. Uh, The teams flew low on their approach. They were about 200 feet over the water. And as they reached the Japanese coastline, they dropped very low, some of them coming in just a few dozen feet above the ground, and they made their way to their intended targets, which were military and industrial sites in Tokyo, Yokohama, Kobe, Nagoya, and Osaka. And as they rose into the air to about... 1,200 feet over their targets, they dropped their bombs. And then they headed to airfields on the Chinese mainland to land. The wrap-up of this mission, which was basically successful, didn't go as planned. 
We're going to talk about exactly what happened right after we pause for another brief word from one of our sponsors. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. So, going back to the Doolittle Raid, while this raid had the intended effect of scaring Japan and undermining their confidence, it really took its toll on Doolittle's team. The planes did not make it to the emergency airfields that they had been planned to land at. Because of their very early takeoff, they were all running out of fuel. And to make matters worse, a nasty bit of weather was moving in. Doolittle described in his autobiography actually seeing sharks in the water below as they were flying and thinking that that would be an absolutely terrible place to bail out. And eventually they got a little bit of tailwind and they were able to get a little bit closer to their intended mark. Every one of the B-25s used in the raid was lost. The soldiers in them had to bail out over China. Three crews successfully crashed, landed in China, and made their way to safety. But there were also a number of casualties. Uh, Before we go on, I want to have a brief side note on terminology. So my understanding about the word soldier is that it is usually used for 
army, whereas Air Force would normally be called airmen. And I, you could make the argument that these guys should be considered airmen because they were in the uh, Army Air Corps before the Air Force was founded. But just for the sake of simplicity, we're sticking with soldiers here. So if you are an airman, please don't be offended. <laughs> I'm I'm not trying to, you know, do any dicey uh, misnomering, but you know, we're in that that weird phase where it's the Air Force doesn't exist yet. So that's the scoop. Uh, one soldier died during the bailout. And while swimming across a lake to evade Japanese occupation forces, two men drowned. Eight men were captured. And of those, three of them were executed. Another of the remaining five died of starvation while in custody of the Japanese. One plane landed in the Soviet Union where their bomber was taken and the crew was interned. The Soviets eventually moved them to another location near the Iranian border and managed to bribe someone to smuggle them across the border to the British consulate. According to Soviet documents that were later declassified, this entire smuggling operation was actually the work of Soviet authorities. They wanted to move the United States soldiers out of the Soviet Union, but they couldn't violate the neutrality pact they had with Japan in order to do it. In fact, the United States military had originally tried to work out a deal with the Soviet Union to land there after the raid rather than in China. But again, because of the relationship they had with Japan, the request to do that had been denied. And as for Doolittle's immediate crew on his plane, after parachuting into China, they were assisted by American uh, by an American missionary and uh, both Chinese military people and civilians, and they were able to get home. There's actually some very wacky stories in Doolittle's book about him convincing some of the Chinese people he was encountering that, yes, he was an American soldier uh, and he was who he said he was. But uh, Doolittle thought when he got home, he was actually going to face a court-martial for losing all the aircraft. He would later write, quote, I sat down beside a wing and I looked at the thousands of pieces of shattered metal that had once been a beautiful airplane. I felt lower than a frog's posterior. This was my first combat mission. I had planned it from the beginning and led it. I was sure it was my last. As far as I was concerned, it was a failure, and I felt there could be no future for me in uniform. He was happy, though, about his parachute landing. He had some real concerns about his ankles being injured again because, I mean, even though a parachute slows your fall down, you still land pretty hard, and his ankles had previously been broken. Uh, Fortunately, slash, I was going to say but unfortunately, but it's all fortunate, he wound up landing in manure, which is not ideal, but is better than re-breaking his ankles. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he was very thankful to be smelly for a little while rather than have to be in casts again. So the Doolittle Raid had two immediate effects. First, it was a huge morale boost for U.S. troops, civilians at home, and the Allies. And second, as we mentioned earlier, it really sent a shockwave through the Japanese military. The thought in Japan up to this point had been that the U.S. lacked real firepower in the Pacific, since so many vessels and planes had been destroyed at Pearl Harbor and so many other assets were already deployed in Europe. As Doolittle wrote in his autobiography, quote, the bombs could only do a fraction of the damage the Japanese had inflicted on us at Pearl Harbor. But the primary purpose of the raid against the main island of Japan was psychological. And immediately, the Japanese forces scrambled to fortify their defenses in the Pacific. Their carrier fleet in the Indian Ocean was called home to protect the islands of Japan. Aircraft that had been spread throughout the South Pacific by Japan were all recalled to patrols at home to defend against another possible attack from U.S. bombers. 
This shift of Japan's military assets back to the Japanese islands, along with United States victories at the Battle of the Coral Sea in May 1942 and the Battle of Midway in June of that year, enabled the United States to launch a a campaign against Japan at Guadalcanal in August of 1942. This would have been impossible before the Japanese defensive stand in the Pacific had been crippled. And immediately after the raid, of course, Doolittle was not court-martialed as he expected, and he was instead promoted. He had been a lieutenant colonel when he led the raid, but the very next day he was made a brigadier general, skipping over the rank of full colonel completely. Doolittle was also awarded the Medal of Honor for his efforts, an honor he was given a month after the raid. The citation stated the reason for his award simply and clearly and put into perspective just how dangerous the Doolittle raid had been. It read, quote, With the apparent certainty of being forced to land in enemy territory or to perish at sea, Colonel Doolittle personally led a squadron of army bombers manned by volunteer crews in a highly destructive raid on the Japanese mainland. Doolittle would go on to command the Strategic Air Forces, the 12th Air Force in Britain, and the 15th Air Force in North Africa and Italy. He later commanded the 8th Air Force, which was instrumental in forcing Nazi surrender at the end of World War II. And after the war, James Doolittle returned to work at Shell Oil. He was eventually named the president of the Institute of Aeronautical Science, and he served on the president's scientific advisory committee. In 1983, Doolittle was made the 25th recipient of the United States Military Academy's Sylvanus Thayer Award given for Distinguished Military Service. Doolittle died on September 27th of 1993 at Pebble Beach, California at the age of 96. He had had a stroke earlier in September and he spent his last several weeks in his son's home before he passed. And I'm so awed by his life. And what I really love, one of the things that came up when I was researching this uh, was that at one point somebody had referred to him as the Da Vinci of flight. And he said, I think they mean more like I'm the Rube Goldberg. That's not the direct (laughs) quote, but it was kind of like that. Like he was just like, no, I'm just I'm I'm just busy trying stuff. That's (laughs) awesome. Which I sort of loved. It was so uh, sort of humble and wonderful and witty at the same time. Uh, So that is the story of James Doolittle and the Doolittle Raid. Thanks so much for joining us on this Saturday. Since this episode is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of the show, that could be obsolete now. Our current email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Our old How Stuff Works email address no longer works. You can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 